two chapters have talked a lot about how Christ is Lord over everything. And now, beginning in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he talks about how Christ is preeminent in our lives and how that should show forth. And he's giving spheres of submission. And today is some of the most emotional, emotionally packed verses in the entire Bible. It deals with slavery. So let's begin in verse 18. I'll read through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So in the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Lord, as our master in heaven, we ask now that you would cause your word to accomplish its work. We have many needs. Some of us are on the verge of decisions or fearful or in grief or loss or, um, or hopeful or hopeless. Wherever we are, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would plant seeds that would bear fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine living in a world where half of the population are slaves. Imagine a world where basically all labor, all manual labor, and even intellectual labor is done by slaves, where work was considered beneath the dignity of the slave owners. Everything was done by slaves. Medical care, uh, teaching, education, civil service. And imagine a world where the master possessed the power of life and death over the slaves. They were regarded as tools with no legal rights or privileges. Now, as a Christian in that environment, how would you seek to live for Christ in such a culture? If you were a slave or if you were a slave owner, how would you seek to display the lordship of Christ in your life? How would you apply the principles of God's word in such a situation? Well, that was the situation in the Roman Empire wherein the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the believers in the city of Colossae. As I mentioned, this is one of the passages in the Bible which evokes a variety of emotional responses. Some people are bewildered when these verses are read that Paul does not immediately call for complete emancipation and eradication of all slavery. Others are embarrassed by this passage as though it's some sort of endorsement or support for slavery. As the Supreme Court last year dealt with marriage and redefining marriage, I, could, I lost count of how many times I heard discussions and interviews and debates where the, the biblical view of marriage was dismissed like that when the person would say, well, we know that you say the Bible teaches marriage should be between a man and a woman. The Bible also teaches slavery. <clears throat> I would just shake my head in perplexity. 
that someone just did not have a simple answer back for that, that the Bible does not teach slavery. So some are embarrassed by this passage, as though it does. At first glance, it does seem that rather than removing the yoke of slavery, Paul is endorsing it more firmly by telling slaves to obey their masters and everything. So where does that leave us? Today we wince when we hear the words slaves, masters, bondservants, which is synonymous with slaves, largely because we may immediately think of modern slavery. Now, if you're 40 years old or younger, you are probably much more aware of this than those of us that are older. But you realize that there is an estimated 20 to 30 million people in slavery across the world today. An estimated number of 800,000 people are illegally trafficked across international borders every year, including our own. There are 161 countries affected by human trafficking, and the total yearly profit gained from human trafficking is a staggering $32 billion a year. It ranks third behind the illegal drug trade and arms trafficking. The majority of modern slavery victims are between the ages of 18 and 24. 78% of those work in labor, 22% are in the sex industry. This may surprise you, in 1850, the cost of a slave in today's dollars would be $40,000. But today, the cost of a modern slave is $90. $40,000, the equivalent of that, to $90 today. So we wince when we see these words in the New Testament, or we think of slavery in the Americas and in the Caribbean in the 17th through 19th centuries. When I've been to Haiti four times and Cuba twice, you have to learn about the history of slavery. Most of the slaves that were brought to the New World were taken to Brazil, a million and a half. 400,000 were brought to the southern U.S. Uh, Then you have the French bringing slaves to, to what became Haiti, uh, Hispaniola was the, uh, the entire island with the Domin- what we call the Dominican public now on the, the eastern side. And, and the average lifespan of a, of a slave serving in what's now Haiti was two years. Uh, they, they were tools. The, the people who uh, uh, owned the, the sugar plantations had no intention of moving there. They could care less what happened to the people. They just wanted the profit from the, from the crops. And so it is a... Uh, It is a scar-filled history, and so we read about that, and we think of slavery, we wince when we think about that type of slavery that was race-based and lifelong and based on kidnapping. However, in biblical times, in the ancient world, there were many types of slavery. Much evidence shows that it was brutal and it was harsh, but then there's evidence that many slaves were not treated like African slaves would be. They lived normal lives. They were paid the going wage of the day, although they were not allowed to quit or to change employers. And they served in slavery an average of 10 years. Prisoners of war became slaves. Men could be sentenced to being galley slaves for crimes. A person could become a slave for a set period of time to pay back and work off debts because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times. Often the result was an indentured servitude which lasted for years until the debts were paid. Now this may surprise you. 
Slaves owned slaves in many cases. And many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, civil servants. Some authors note that in the ancient world, no one could have conceived of an economic and labor structure without it. In other words, no one, not even slaves, thought the whole institution should or could be abolished. Now, that is why Paul's letters and what he says here in Colossians are not directed at abolishing slavery, but rather at transforming this ancient institution from the inside. The great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said this, Paul's brief statements about the equality of slaves and masters brought about an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Let me read it again. Paul's brief statements about the equality of slaves and masters brought about an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. So slavery was an accepted institution in all cultures and all societies of the world from recorded time. But it was only within Christianity. It was only within Christianity that the idea eventually arose that slavery was an abominable institution that needed to be abolished. Why? Because of the implications of the gospel, which teaches all Christians are slaves to Christ. And Paul, as we see here, tells slave owners their slaves were equal to them as brothers in Christ, equal to them in the sight of God, and they were to be treated as brothers. And this type of teaching so transformed the master-slave or master-servant relationship that in a sense it abolished slavery, though the outer shell remained until it too was ultimately discarded. Later, when race-based kidnapping fueled slavery came to the New World, it was so out of accord with biblical principles that Christians led the fight to have slavery abolished. And despite how emotional this subject is, we've got to think it out. Because if you engage in apologetics pretty much with anybody today about biblical views of the world, this will be brought up. And often, and often those who claim to believe in the Bible haven't read it enough and studied it enough know how to answer. And the answers are, are pretty simple. Many critics of Christianity simply assume that the Bible wrongly endorses slavery and therefore it's wrong in anything else it teaches too. If it can't be believed in that area, it can't be believed in other areas too. And yet, in reality, it was biblical theology that destroyed the heart of slavery within the Christian community, and it finally led Christians to abolish the oppression-prone institution altogether. So, as we come to these verses for a few moments before we come to the Lord's table, what is most important in this passage is that Paul is not addressing the whole institution of slavery. He is speaking directly to individual Christians in the Colossian church about how to conduct themselves in that situation. And his words were revolutionary. His words were revolutionary. Let's look at the major principles. In verse 22, he says to bondservants, as the ESV says, or uh, other versions, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
So whether you are working for others or, or others were working for you, he says you should do your work as unto the Lord. So the slave was set free from eye service. This, the word eye service is, is, is the idea that you're doing something strictly to be noticed. You, you are doing it keeping an eye on the boss to make sure that, that he or she sees you. You want to gain their attention, and so you, you do just enough just so that they'll think you are fulfilling your responsibilities. In other words, it's all a matter of external appearances. Hey, anybody here ever gone to school? We know exactly what he's talking about, right? You know, look busy. Do this. Do, do uh, oh, the, the, the teacher's coming. Let's act busy. It's eye service. We can do it in the workplace. We can do it pretty much anywhere. Uh, the slave does not only that which is necessary to attract favor or escape punishment. Uh, he would do nothing more. Why should he? But now the Christian says, you're delivered from eye service. You don't have to worry about what the other person thinks because now you are pleasing your heavenly master in the way that you serve. So the Christian slave can actually now obey for completely different reasons than before he or she was a believer. In the second part of verse 22, they're free now to do their work wholeheartedly. That means with sincerity of heart. The fact that I'm working is unto the Lord rather than to a human master enables me to serve with sincerity. Uh, that I can do this task for Christ even though no one else may see it. Third, the slave is set free from work without proper reward in verses 24 and 25. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. So Paul is reminding those that were slaves in the church that, that in truth they're serving the Lord. And if they are shortchanged by their masters in this life, God takes notice. And that, that God will repay them, that God will compensate them, you might say, even though they may not be fairly treated in this life. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says what would have been laughable to an unbelieving slave owner at that time. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This would have sounded absurd. But Christian slave owners came to acknowledge Christ was Lord of all of life, including this. And so this new rule of Christ in our hearts, he rules with justice and fairness. That's how Christ has dealt with us. Now that becomes the standard they were to deal with their servants. So here's some general principles of what Paul is saying that apply to us today. I think, I think we're in error if we just immediately lift these principles and apply them to the workplace without realizing the situation these people were in in the first century. And often when we come to passages about slaves and masters, we immediately go to employers' employees today. Uh, I think there's something deeper there than that. But here are some general principles. One, you should serve Christ wherever you are. Now, I grew up in the South. Uh, I love the South. Uh, it scares me about our cultural religion that often is far from being Christianity, but it, it uses the same vernacular at times. It uses the same words, but often it, it's very compartmentalized. If you know that term, that means that, well, my Christianity is right over here in this box, but then my relationships are here. My marriage is here. The way I conduct work is here. 
My worldview is here. Everything seems compartmentalized, and this should pervade all of them, that our, the lordship of Christ is preeminent over all of life. So I should serve Christ wherever I am, in every area of life, uh, as a student, as a, uh, in a marriage, as a, as a pastor, as a, as a child, as a, as a parent, as a, a grandparent, as a lawyer or doctor or, or a maid or wh- whatever. Whatever, I should serve Christ there. But the second part is good news. I can serve Christ wherever I am. You can serve Christ wherever you are. This is not limited to certain places or certain spheres of influence. Joseph, in Genesis, is sold by his brothers into slavery um, rather than killing him. And... Then, at the age of 17, he's thrown, he's unjustly accused, and he's thrown into prison for 13 years. He could have wilted. He could have said, I can't serve God here. I've lost my freedom. I've lost my family. Uh, I've lost my identity. Uh, I have nothing. And yet, what does he do? He, He ministers to those around us. And God was preparing him for what would come later through a famine in that land. The Apostle Paul is in prison when he writes these words. He could have said, I can't serve Christ here. Uh, no freedom, no, no access to people I need to talk with. I can't preach. At least I can't preach to those outside my confinement. And yet he ministered in that situation. John Bunyan wrote much of his works while in prison. A book that has really ministered to me the past two or three years is the old devotional book, Streams in the Desert. I've got the updated edition, but if you've ever read Streams in the Desert, I typically have shied away from books like that. Little, I thought they were kind of feminine. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean that. However you heard it, I didn't mean it the way you just heard it. <laughs> but it had a blue cover rather than pink, so I decided, you know, now really a friend that had gone through a hard time gave me one, and so I started. It's a daily reading. Well, if, if you've ever read any of that, and I highly in, 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 uh, promote it, men and women, <laughs> Mrs. L.B. Kalman, she and her husband were pioneer missionaries to Japan and China from 1901 to 1917, and then he became ill. They came back to the United States where she cared for him for the last six years of his life before he died. During that time, as she would read devotional books and do Bible studies, she just made notes. And then after his death, these were put together in this book, and so it's daily readings, a tremendous daily readings. But I was thinking... Anybody that's a full-time caretaker, isn't that a pretty good reason not to be thinking, I've got to be serving the Lord here? Maybe, this, maybe the caretaking is the service itself, and yet she could minister in that situation. You get the point. You should minister wherever you are. You should serve Christ wherever you are. You can serve Christ wherever you are. And our, the reformers in the, the 16th, 17th century, they call this quorum deo. The phrase that means in the presence of God. That you and I live quorum Deo. We live every moment of our lives in the presence of God, before the face of God, before the gaze of God. We are acting under his sight. And so rather than that being terrifying, when Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing the evil and the good, it means when you're, when you're working and you're or you're a student and you're doing math problems, God sees it. You're serving him there. You can 
clean a house to the glory of God. You can practice medicine to the glory of God. You can practice law to the glory of God. You can, you can build machines to the glory of God. You can weld to the glory of God. There's not this separation between, well, if it's spiritual, you're either a preacher or a missionary, but everything else is secular and God could care less about that. No. We live quorum Deo. It gives dignity to our work. That was why Martin Luther wrote that the works of monks and priests is in God's sight no way superior to the works of a farmer laboring in a field or of a woman looking after her home. He believed the scrubbing of floors held as much dignity as occupying a pulpit to preach. We call that the Protestant work ethic, that each individual, every one of you, uh, every one of us is to understand how God has called us and we are collaborating with God in the grand design of the universe. We're working for his glory. You can study math to the glory of God. Of course, you can teach school or perform surgery or be an auto mechanic. Let me give you one of the most profound uh, examples I've ever seen. Many years ago, Barbara and I, when I was in seminary, I was in graduate school in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and we were traveling to Alabama to visit relatives. And it was the middle of the summer, it was blazing hot, and uh, we had at least one infant in the car, and uh, our car began giving us trouble on the interstate, began missing, and I could tell this is serious, we've got to stop. So we pulled off at an exit in Forest, Mississippi, the only time I've ever been to Forest, Mississippi, and went to a General Motors dealership and describe the problem. Now, today I'd probably need an appointment, you know, maybe a day or two, no offense to the car dealers, like there was no offense to the women a few minutes ago or whatever. But they immediately said, come right back here. This mechanic gets us back. There are lots of cars everywhere, and he gets us in this bay. And I said, look, I'm mechanical. Do you mind if I just look over your shoulder and see what this is? He says, no, not at all. I watched this guy. He's burning his hands on the motor. It's hot. It's been on the, you know, on the interstate. Hadn't had time to cool off. He says, let's check the fuel pressure. And he unhooks gas lines. And he says, no, that's working. The fuel pump's working. And he's going through. He's pulling off spark plugs. But he's getting hurt all along the way. And then he finally arrives at it. It's the distributor. And so he replaces the distributor. It's all fine. I've never to this day seen anyone work so hard on a car with such proficiency and such diligence when he didn't have to. We were strangers. We weren't people that lived in forest. He could have taken advantage of us and sent us on our way with a half-repaired car. Now, I told Barbara about that because she was sitting inside there with one of the kids in a, where it was air-conditioned and, you know, waiting on us. And I, I, I told her if he had said to me after he was finished, do you mind if I tell you about my faith? I would have said, I'd love to hear about your faith because what I just saw as you worked on my engine. Uh, that diligence. Now, that's what Paul is freeing them up to do as slaves, but also as masters. That you live quorum Deo. You live before the gaze of God. That he is who we work for rather than another. And so he says, God will reward. God will reward. God sees even when others don't. And so this should encourage you when your work goes unnoticed, when you've worked hard and nobody seems to know, or you've put in so many hours and the grade came back bad, and, and then you're accused of, well, you didn't study, and you say, oh, does nobody know what I did? Yes, God knows. Wayne Herring reminded us when he was here to speak years ago that the French sculptor of the Statue of Liberty 
finished out the top of the head, though no one would see it in that day because airplanes had not been invented, but he said God would see it. So it's that kind of, it's that kind of mindset. I must move on uh, quickly, and I'm at the end. The motivation for all of this, especially as we see in verse 1 of chapter 4, is we have a master in heaven. You see, as a Christian in authority over others, you cannot say, like a slave owner could in that day, it's only my business how I treat them, and I can treat them any way I want to. I do not have to answer to anyone. That would have been the attitude of a slave owner. Now, what's Paul saying? No, it's not. And yes, you do. And who you'll answer to is God, that you have a master in heaven. Do you see how he inserted what would be, I guess my analogy is like a computer virus? He inserted that into the institution of slavery, and then it was only a matter of time before the whole thing fell because of that, of treating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we come to the Lord's table, I don't know many of you. I see faces today I've never seen before. Um, I don't remember seeing. That's a whole different issue, isn't it? I want to invite you to become a slave. I want to invite you to become a slave to a master who sees you, who made you, who loves you, who bought you. And he didn't pay $90, and he didn't pay $40,000. He paid the blood of his own son, the most precious thing of all, to purchase you off the slave block. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we come as his servants. And we come remembering the purchase price, that the bread represents the body of Christ where he obeyed God in every respect. So as we eat it, what we are reminding ourselves, declaring to others is his perfect sinless record is applied to me, how he obeyed God in his body. When we drink the wine, it's his blood that covers our guilt. So I get his perfect record, I get my sins covered, washed away with his blood. And that's what's displayed there. Do you know Christ today? If you don't, you can. Just put your trust in him and him alone for that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we certainly don't have all the answers uh, about cultural things that have existed in history or exist in parts of the world today. We do pray, though, for an ending to modern slavery. We think of young boys and girls and others that are trapped in systems of labor or the sex trade that seem to have no hope, but thank you for the awareness that's risen by so many working against this. But we also pray for ourselves and our relationship with you, that we would see that we have a master in heaven through Christ who you see everything about us, you see everything we do, uh, and that we would, we would live quorum Deo, we would live with the knowledge, full knowledge, that we're before your face every day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your order of worship. You'll see the words there, to Jesus paid it all. Let's stand and sing together as we prepare for communion. <laughs>